Jeff for those very kind words and prayers, really appreciate that, as well as the whole church family who uh, at large have been so supportive already this week, so thank you so much, really appreciate being part of a, a loving faith community. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning or if you're our guest, I want to say welcome. Great to have you here with us at Erina. Uh, last Sunday, we started a new series called After God's Own Heart, where we're following the, the life of David through First uh, and Second Samuel. And yes, we are talking about David, uh, but we're talking about David because of the messianic roots, I suppose, that, um, that originate from him, which lead to Christ. And so each Sunday, I also want to just explore, sure, what can we learn in this passage about God through David, but also how is the story of David pointing us to the person of Christ. So we started last week where David is very first introduced in the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The subsequent chapter is 17, which is where we are today. We won't necessarily be sort of following along each chapter. We'll be jumping around a little bit. But um, for these three weeks, 16, 17 and 18, we will be uh, moving in that uh, sequential order. Chapter 17 is kind of a classic underdog story of David and Goliath. Many of us know it. In fact, I'd be very surprised uh, if, if anyone in this room here didn't know it. It's, um, I think it's kind of the origin of the underdog story, if you like, isn't it? You know, the classic uh, small verse tall, uh, weak verse strong, and uh, sort of the real unexpected tale of uh, David coming out on top of Goliath. Now... Um, 1 Samuel 17 is a long chapter. If you have your Bible with you, you may note that there are 58 lengthy verses. They're not short verses. Oftentimes, they're long verses. And this is often the case when we're dealing with narrative. Um, so this is a section of Scripture where it's story, and sometimes the story is lengthy. It's important that we, we really get the detail of the story, but it's, it's often very long and lengthy and difficult to read the passage out in its entirety. Um, so what I will do, the way that the passage is, um, I suppose, written by the author is there are, there are seven, or sorry, there are eight Scenes. I'm going to refer to them as scenes. So if you imagine a TV series or a movie that you would watch, there are several scenes that, that kind of keep happening throughout and those scenes are building up and they all culminate together to bring the whole story to a conclusion at the end. And that's exactly what the author is doing in 1 Samuel 17. So what I'm going to do is that little sign, that, that as we walk through, I'm going to sort of briefly go through all of those eight scenes, which is the text in its entirety. Um, uh, some parts I will go through quite briefly, other parts we will pay a little bit more attention to, and then I will, at the conclusion, make some brief observations about what we learn uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, but when you see that little sort of sign there, you know that we're in a new, a new scene. And before we move into sort of the first scene, I just want to say it's important for us to appreciate that, um, as I mentioned, this is narrative, this is story, and any good story, and this is a great story, a great story has conflict and tension, there's often a bad guy, there's a good guy, there's a battle, uh, there's defeat, and there's victory, and there's a hero. So we've got all of those elements in today's chapter. It's a, it's a great story, um, but it's part of a much larger story. And it's, it's important that we appreciate the larger story to understand where this kind of macro story fits into the, sorry, micro fits into the macro. So just 
We started last week with uh, chapter 16, and in chapter 16, the significance of that is, spiritually speaking, David is anointed as Israel's future king. So from a spiritual perspective, David is good with God. He has been anointed by God. He has the blessing and favor of God upon him. Now, we're actually going to see the spiritual play out in the physical in chapter 17. We're going to see the effects of God's Holy Spirit upon David, his anointed one. But in this culture and in this context, for a person to become a king, and one of the key roles of a king in this ancient culture was in fact that they were a military leader, and if you like, had military runs on the board. And so in many regards, what's happening in chapter 17 is in, a, in the physical realm, David is earning his stripes to, to align him and to prepare him for kingship. So in chapter 16, he has the spiritual anointing. And then in chapter 17, if you like, in the physical realm, there's that physical anointing where amongst all of the people, he will be hailed as a hero and, and that will pave the pathway forward for David to become king of Israel. The other thing that will happen in chapter 17 that kind of keeps the movement of the narrative going and propels the story forward is that David's victory in chapter 7 sets up uh, an incredible amount of envy and jealousy within Saul. And we will hear that next week because Saul is still the rightful king of Israel. We saw last week that God has removed his Holy Spirit, removed his favor and blessing upon Saul, but he is still king. Saul was king for some 40 odd years of Israel. And there was a lengthy period of time where God had anointed David before he ruled as king. So that's how the movement of the narrative follows. So today is integral for two reasons. David is anointed, if you, if you like, um, in the physical realm as king. He earns his stripes. But also it moves the text forward by creating that tension with Saul and that jealousy that Saul has pushes David out and eventually leads to Saul's own death that then means that David can become king. So when an author is putting the story together, he's looking at how all of these different events culminate together uh, with God's big story. So that's kind of the story of First Samuel uh, from this point on, and we'll continue on in the subsequent weeks. Okay, so the first three verses is our first scene, and what these verses are doing is just literally setting up um, kind of the context and the geography. Now, before there was a David and Goliath, there's an Israel and a Philistia. And these two, as many of you would probably know from reading the Old Testament, are kind of like arch enemies. And the reason they are like arch enemies is because both um, the Philistines and the Israelites sort of emerged upon Canaan, which is a very large area of land. In fact, today it inhabits at least four countries, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and I've forgotten the fourth. But that just lets you know that is a large area of land. So you've got two nations submerging on this land and trying to stake rights for their particular part of Canaan. And so what is at stake whenever there's battles between the Israelites and the Philistines is the land. Um, the text kind of sets up the uh, story um, without giving specific names of the areas. What ends up happening is there's a valley of Ekron and that's where the battle, if you like, takes place. 
uh, and to give either side sort of an advantage. They're both on a mountain. Uh, so there's like opposing mountains, if you like, where both sides is set up and kind of the valley is where the battle is to take place. Uh, so what the author is doing initially is just kind of giving us the geography of where this is happening. Um, now, in the, in the ancient times, again, unlike today, where people might decide that they'll go and join the military, in this particular culture, um, there obviously appears to be age exclusions, and we get that in today's text where it mentions that Jesse, David's dad, is very old. He's not in the war. We also, mess, we also learn that David's three elder brothers are soldiers. Uh, so what we can see is that clearly there are age restrictions to youth and the elderly. But other than that, basically every able-bodied male was in. He was a soldier. It's not like you got to enlist and some did and some didn't. And so it's a very significant thing that, uh, that Goliath puts forward and his kind of um, strategy, and this was actually not uncommon in ancient times, uh, particularly if a nation had a champion, uh, someone that they, they knew could, um, who was sort of unmatched. Rather than having a huge amount of carnage and slaughter, it's basically a man-to-man combat. Um, where you get one representative from each nation to battle it out and the winner essentially wins for their entire nation. And uh, the, now the, the interesting thing here is that not only was Goliath, uh, what, not only did Goliath have significant advantage in his size, but also in his weaponry. And in fact, the Philistines in general were far more technologically advanced in their weaponry than the Israelites. So the Philistines are using iron in their weapons at this stage, whereas the Israelites are still largely using wooden instruments. And this just heightens uh, the degree of kind of kudos um, and confidence that the Philistines have going into battle. And what's at stake? Well, what is at stake for Israel is the land that God brought them into, uh, that they had to prosper in, so the land is at stake, but also all of these young um, able-bodied men. So the peace and the prosperity and the future of Israel kind of hangs in the balance. So it's a significant moment in Israel's story. Uh, Goliath um, is given a lot of airtime in these passages. So firstly, the author will take three lengthy verses to describe um, who Goliath is and just how overwhelming he is. So we're told that he is almost three metres in height. He has a um, just, his, just his chest kind of covering weighs almost 60 kilograms. Now, I'm sure there are people in this room who weigh 60 kilograms. That's just the chest. He has a, a bronze helmet. Um, he has, like, think of, like, soccer shin pads. They're bronze. Um, he has, like, basically the guy's covered in bronze. And apart from his face... Um, which is so high because he's like three metres tall, um, he's virtually invincible. He's unstoppable. And he has this spear that, you know, just the tip of the spear is about seven kilos in itself. Um, so this is significant. And I guess what the author is doing here is, is really helping you, the reader, appreciate just how overwhelming, how oversized, and uh, sort of how... Um, 
in a moment we'll see how weak David is compared to Goliath. So you as the reader at this point are meant to be pretty overwhelmed. This guy is invincible. <laughs> uh, he's like, he is like the classic Avenger of today. And, uh, and, and I mentioned about the man-to-man combat. Now, that was Goliath's initiative, and I'm sure the Philistines were more than happy to, to go with that. And we will soon see that, um, well, it didn't quite, the outcome didn't quite work. So lots of people end up dying in this story. Um, but it was, actually, it was actually Goliath's or the Philistines' initiative to sort of suggest that man-to-man combat approach, not the Israelites. And there's actually no, there's nothing in the text that says that they agreed, even agreed to that particular way or strategy of fighting. Uh, we're told that Goliath for 40 days taunts the Israelites. There's this significant sledging that goes on. And uh, in verse 11, we read that Saul, who's the leader, he's the king, right? So he's the leader. The king is the leader of the military. So he is the military leader. uh, And the rest of his troops run away with fear and terror and hopelessness in the face of Goliath. So this is kind of the situation. And this is Goliath's taunt. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And at this point, there's some literary relief. And what I mean by that is, up to this point, you as the reader are feeling overwhelmed and anxious at the size and the sight and the sheer impressiveness of Goliath. And all of a sudden, the author brings in our character from chapter 16, who we know has God's anointing and has God's Holy Spirit. Now, unlike all of that airtime given to Goliath's impressive size and weight and weaponry, the author sets up a comparison, a contrast between Goliath and David and actually says nothing about David's physical appearance or strength or weaponry. We don't even know about his sling and stone at this point. All we know is about his heritage, and that's actually more important. His heritage is that he is the son of Jesse and that he is the youngest of eight. And that, again, will just refer us back to chapter 16 and help us remember of the significance of that. The other thing, too, that the author does in these verses when introducing David is he highlights the fact that David's three elder brothers are all soldiers, but David is not. So what is happening in, these, in this scene here is David is being painted as a very unlikely character to have anything to do with the defeat of this Philistine giant. Does that make sense? That's, the narrative continues. And in verses 17 to 13, David effectively takes a journey from Bethlehem, which is his home, to the battleground. And the distance that he actually travels by foot is around the same distance as this church to the fish and chip shop at Woiwoi, where the park is with the kids. That's a reasonable walk. And that's why I think David sets out early in the morning, as we see. Uh, And he may get there in the evening uh, when he hears David, sorry, Goliath's, evening 
taunt or sledge. He kind of comes out in the morning and the evening. So David clearly wasn't there in the morning. He's probably there in the evening. Now we see here that David is like the errand boy of the family. He's the youngest. So um, just to come back to where last week's chapter ended up, David finds himself as a minstrel. Have you ever heard of that term before? I'm sure many of you had. I hadn't. Well, I kind of had, but I had to Google it. It means a medieval musician. Okay, so David was a minstrel for Saul. He was doing the, you know, the, the liar kind of therapy when Saul had these crazy psychotic attacks. Now, at that point in the narrative, uh, the, these two nations were not at war. And I also mentioned last week that a significant period of time had obviously passed between um, even that section of chapter 16, um, those, those two sections of chapter 16. So at this point, David is no longer serving as a minstrel in Saul's courts. But it would appear that he kind of was doing that intermittently anyway. He remained a shepherd for his father, Jesse, and, um, and would go to uh, Saul's courts when uh, he was required. Um, also, he is the youngest and he is kind of taking supplies to his brothers. What this speaks of, I think, uh, indirectly, is the humility and the patience of David. David has been anointed with oil. He is set apart as Israel's future king, and yet he remains a shepherd. He remains doing the menial tasks of the youngest of the family. And what we see here is we can, again, God chose David because of his heart, and we can just see here already kind of the type of character that David has as one who is humble, as one who is patient, and just trusting in God's timing. You may have a sense that God has something significant planned for your life, but maybe you're still tending sheep like David was. And God is actually using that time to prepare you. So whatever that time might be for you, don't discount it. God knows what he's doing, and his timing is always right and always good. Now, Saul has an enormous carrot Okay, and, and what he basically does is he holds out this carrot to all of his troops. If any of you, if any of you can defeat this giant, I am going to give you great wealth, firstly. I am going to give you my beautiful daughter to wed, thirdly. And, sorry, secondly. And thirdly, I am going to exempt your entire family from paying taxes. That is a massive carrot, is it not? But none of the Israelite troops have bitten. They haven't taken the bait. Not even those um, uh, prizes or rewards could tempt any of the Israelite troops. Now, interestingly, the person who should have been most able to go and battle uh, Goliath, if we remember from chapter 16, one of the key... Sorry, it was actually chapter 9. The key description of Saul was his height... Saul was kind of head and shoulders above all others, and he was handsome. That's one of the reasons he was chosen to become Israel's king. Uh, So Saul himself should have actually been the one, not only because of his height, but also because he was the military leader. But no, uh, neither Saul nor any of his troops was able to take Goliath on. An interesting thing, just a really small piece here, um, is we see Eliab, who is... David's older brother, acts like a bit of a mirror in chapter 16 
and in chapter 17. In chapter 16, you might recall that Eliab is a little bit of a mirror to Saul. The physical description of Eliab is very similar to that of Saul. In chapter 17, Eliab is a little bit of a mirror of Goliath. Uh, Eliab has very contemptuous, spiteful, mean-spirited speech towards his younger brother David, and Goliath will have the same. And so we just see that Eliab is used here as a mirror. What is contrasted in these verses in 17 to 30 is kind of this comparison. In verse 11 and verse 24, we see Israel fleeing with fear and hopelessness and terror at the sight of the enemy. David, however, sees differently. David has faith. He doesn't see a giant. He sees God. Uh, And David speaks into this context. David asks, and just an interesting side note here, there's quite a few side notes, I imagine, as we go through this. But um, this is the first time David speaks. Up until that point, the author just tells us stories about David, but here's the first time he speaks. He's been mute up until now. And it's interesting that actually what spills forth out of David's mouth is theologically charged. And so the first time David speaks, his speech is actually concerned with the glory of Yahweh. And it's interesting here, I think perhaps one of the things that the author is doing is introducing David right up front the first time he speaks. He is speaking about the glory of Yahweh. And we see here that through life there are lots of people that we know who speak a lot. And there are other people who don't speak very often. But when they speak, there's weight to their words. And in a sense here, there's significant weight to David's words. And I'll take you through that um, shortly. But David basically says, you know, who is this guy? Why on earth are we allowing him to taunt and to sledge the armies of the living God? We move into uh, the next scene. And David's kind of questioning um, lands him in Saul's tent. David's inquiring about what is going on. And that, that, that lands him in Saul's tent uh, where David very assuredly puts himself forward to Saul and, uh, and says, I will, I will not stand. I will not stand for this man to condemn and criticise the God of Israel. I will go and fight him. And, uh, and David has this, he says, you know, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And I, I sort of would love to see Saul's face uh, in this moment. It's one of those real, are you serious? Are you kidding me moments that we get from Saul in verse 33. And David, as we would know the story, um, has past experiences that have prepared him for this present experience. David says to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. 
The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. What David does in this moment is he actually draws on a past experience, a past experience of faith. You see, it wasn't David's bravery or clever skills that enabled him to overcome the lion and the bear. It was Yahweh. And he will also go on to say that it is because I know Yahweh is with me that I will defeat this Philistine. David's confidence is not in himself. It has been in his God in the past and it will be in his God in the future. And I was thinking about this. Is this not what this very story is in the Bible for? In fact, so many of the stories in the Bible are given to the people of God to remind us of all the things God has done in the past so that we can have trust and confidence in the future. Now you, as a follower of Christ, I'm sure, will have your own stories to draw on where God has been faithful. And what we, what we, what we can see here is David's trust and resolve in the God of the past for the God of the future. So I want to say to you this morning, whatever situation you're facing, trust in the God of the past to deliver you in the future. This is so often why so many stories in the Bible are included for us to read and to be reminded and that's why, I mean, the stories were there for them as well. For, for these people, it's like the stories of God delivering the Israelites from Egypt is the story that will encourage them that God will deliver them from the Philistines. And so on it goes. Now, we know uh, the classic, again, well, Saul is like, okay, you know, good luck to you. You can go. Saul doesn't seem to have any problems uh, with David going and having a crack at Goliath. And uh, you know how it goes. Saul tries all of his fancy armour on David, and it's just going to hinder David. He's, it's too big for him, and one of his skills and advantages is his speed. The, all of David's weight in his armour, sorry, Goliath's weight in his armour, the drawback to that is that it slows him down, whereas David's freedom gives him speed and pace, which he uses, uh, because there are two occasions where the writer says that David ran, and so clearly running was important. And so he goes with his sling and five smooth stones of which you will only use one. And the battle is in many respects over before it begins. Um, David comes, I mean, and the thing is that there's dialogue between the two of them. So they can't have been that far apart. Uh, David, sorry, Goliath sees David coming towards him. I'm sure after 40 days, he's surprised that anyone's coming forward, but let alone this young shepherd boy. And he says to David, he's disgusted with David. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He is repulsed. He is offended at David's um, charge. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David, now, Far more detail is given to David's speech than the actual battle itself. And again, it just tells you where David's confidence lies. 
David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, uh, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. It's a rousing speech, and it again is designed to really heighten the sense of anticipation of what is coming. Well, the battle itself, as I mentioned, is over before it begins. And David kind of gets one chance. He gets one chance. And the accuracy and the speed of that stone, which was probably about three inches wide, I read. It's a decent size and it could get up to speeds of 100 kilometres per hour. Uh, So the sheer size of the stone and the accuracy of David's um, sort of slingshot to hit the one place where Saul was vulnerable and just that one moment to topple down this giant so that David can then go and finish him off with his own sword um, is remarkable. It speaks of two things. It speaks of David's own skill and courage, but it also speaks of God's hand and anointing upon David. Um, There is very much a sense that it is God who has given David the victory uh, in defeating Goliath. Now, in this moment of the next scene, David literally goes from being a shepherd boy to a victorious leader. And as I mentioned at the start, it is this event that really sets him up for kingship. He's now had the spiritual anointing and the physical victory that kind of validates his uh, kingship. And the usual practice um, in these circumstances, once the enemy had been defeated, unless, of course, there was an agreement of that man-to-man combat, was bloodshed and plunder. And that, of course, happens to the Philistines. The final scene, David finds himself back in Saul's tent, just as he was a little earlier on. And we see Saul here questioning David's identity. Now, there's a fair bit of conjecture over this because, hang on, Chapter 16, shouldn't Saul know who David is? Um, Probably the easiest way for us to make sense of this is Saul could be inquiring about David's family uh, because he now owes him a daughter and he is going to exempt his family from taxes. So that could be why Saul is inquiring. If there's any uncertainty in Saul's mind about who David is in chapter 17, as we will see next week in chapter 18, there'll be no doubt in his mind who David is. Some brief and yet important observations from 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, there are two contrasting voices. There is the voice of um, three characters. Uh, There is Goliath. He speaks with disdain. Um... He speaks with disgust. He speaks with intimidation. There is Saul's voice. Firstly, Saul's voice with the Israelites, but then Saul's voice in the tent as David comes to him and suggests that he will defeat the giant himself. Saul's voice is one of criticism. You're too young. You're too inexperienced. It can't be done. It's a voice of fear. 
there's Eliab's voice of contempt and condemnation of his brother. These voices all rise to give a collective voice of fear. So through the text, we have the ever-rising voice of fear. But then, in David, we have the voice of faith. David sees things differently. David has the voice of faith. He's able to speak about the honour and the glory of Yahweh because he has the eyes of faith. David can only speak with the voice of faith because he sees with the eyes of faith. David sees things differently than everybody else in the text. And we see 1 Samuel chapter 16, 7 at play. The Lord does not look at the outward appearance. And David has learnt that lesson. That was said of David himself. But David is a man after God's heart and he knows God intimately to know that God sees things very differently. The Israel army see Goliath and they shudder in their feet and they run away in terror and fear. David doesn't see Goliath. David sees God. He sees the God of Israel who um, helped him defeat the lion and the bear. He sees the God of Israel who will enable him to defeat the giant of Gath, the eyes of faith. David's eyes are so fixated on God and on his glory. And really, what the author is wanting to convey here is the honour and the glory of Yahweh's name. That is what this is all about. It's not really about David defeating Goliath. It is about defending the honour of Yahweh. And no one will be allowed to continue taunting a living God. And this verse so helpfully summarises that for us. The first question that comes out of David's mouth, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? A lot of translations use the word uncircumcised, even the message. I went through and was looking for different translations, but the word uncircumcised has remained in many translations for the very fact that this signifies the covenant. Now, the New Living Translation says pagan, but that doesn't really get to what is going on here. To be an uncircumcised one is to, be, is to not be part of God's covenant that God had made with Israel and that God had made with his people. So firstly, um, Goliath is an uncircumcised one. He is also a Philistine. And the Philistines worship false gods. They have all their own gods. So here's another uh, reason why we should not allow this person to torment the living God. And the third reason is that this one, who is not part of God's covenant, not part of God's chosen people, who worships false idols, false gods, can we allow him to defy the living God who we know from previous experience, who's delivered God, his people, is alive and well, should our trust not be in him? David's primary concern and the author's primary concern is the glory of God. Where do we see Christ in 1 Samuel 17? Well, immediately, the first thing that pops into my mind is an unlikely saviour. 
David, in this moment, is the saviour of Israel. He rescues them. He overcomes the giant. He overcomes the enemy. And he is the unlikely character. Is that not the picture we have of Jesus? Especially if we go to Isaiah 52, 13, right through to chapter 53. The prophecy that foretold of the God's anointed Messiah who had nothing that would, would indicate that he was God's chosen one. And yet he was. Jesus was the unlikely saviour. But also there are characteristics of David that we see in this chapter. He has unswerving trust in God. Jesus had unswerving trust in God. He kept pointing people to his father. Uh, the Messiah or Christ is God's chosen anointed one. Remember Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends. There's that moment of anointing, of setting apart. And the Messiah will be the redeemer, the rescuer of God's people. There are some aspects where we see Christ in this text. This text is not really about David and Goliath. This text is about God and Goliath, who's the underdog now. When God is on your side, when you see with the eyes of faith, when you speak with the voice of faith, who shall I fear? Here are the words of David in Psalm 27, 1, 2. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. The rest of the psalm goes on to speak about the glory of God. Men and women of God, friends, these are the words penned by a man after God's own heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this dramatic and engaging account of 1 Samuel 17. This classic tale of the underdog. Lord, within this story, as we have spent some time this morning, really uncovering the depth of meaning behind the passage, we see David's passion and concern for the glory of your name. We see, Lord, that he is enabled to speak with faith because he has eyes of faith. In the face of fear, he sees you and he has faith. And I pray very specifically this morning, Lord, for each of us here, that as we go through our lives and face the battles that come before us, that the enemy will try to throw our way to destroy and disrupt. I pray that like David, we might learn to see with the eyes of faith and speak with the voice of faith, ultimately, so that you will be glorified. We are not a people who trust in a dead God. We are a people who trust in a living God who has already 
overcome sin and death and will one day eradicate all evil from this world and bring all under his feet as the just ruler and king. And we thank you, as we celebrated earlier, that for those whose trust is in Jesus, the righteousness of him is imbued upon us and we will enjoy living in a place where there is no fear but only faith. Thank you, Father, for this time together in your word. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, will have used it and will continue to use it to strengthen our faith muscles, that we may become men and women of bold resolve in the God of the past, who is also the God of the present and the God of the future. In this we pray, Jesus' name, amen.